Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. A trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. Thank you for joining us again. Today we continue our discussion with Pastor Gary Durham on Jesus' calendar as he described it to his disciples and what we can see that has happened and what is yet to happen. So last time we were talking in Matthew 24, uh, around verse 15, and we were discussing the abomination of desolation, or as some people might know it, the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. And so I know that you wanted to expand on that a little bit, so could you help us understand this a little bit better? Well, I think, J.D., the, uh, the important thing here, we're walking through the sequence in Matthew 24, and when we get to verse 15, as you said, we come to this, what Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. Uh, and then it is interesting uh, when he says, you see, when you see this, and it's a time sequence statement, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation, then he says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And it is interesting, the one Daniel refers to in particular, the, the most important one is in the ninth chapter, in the calendar that is given there. And it's interesting, Jesus is giving a calendar, and Daniel gave a calendar, or was given a calendar by Gabriel. And that calendar covered all of redemptive history from the time of, as we talked about last time, the establishment of Jerusalem, or the rebuilding of Jerusalem, rather, and the decree to do that in 444 B.C., and then all the way down to the coming of Christ through the gates of Jerusalem on Nisan the 9th, A.D. 33. And uh, when that happened, then it says, and then shortly after in Daniel's calendar, that the Messiah would be cut off. And he was five days later. And then rose again, and then it says, there's a period of desolations that will continue for an undescribed period of time. It's desolations and warfare till the end. And then when the end comes, it talks about uh, a prince will come who is of the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Well, we know who those people were. It was the Romans. It was under Titus, the Roman general, who later became the Caesar. And uh, they did destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. And the Jews were revolting all through that those, the late 60s. And ultimately, it culminated in the, 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 the great battle of Jerusalem, which went on for several weeks, about eight weeks or more. It was horrendous. Uh, a lot of people died and a lot of people were taken as slaves and so on. But here, the, what you're referring to, uh, J.D., is the 15th chapter where Jesus refers to that. And then I think we mentioned last time that Matthew adds this little editorial note. He says, let the reader understand when Jesus talks about the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And I think we talked about the fact that there have been several abominations of desolation up to that point, and there was going to be the other one in AD 70, which Titus would create. But there had been the one under Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who had um, desecrated the temple during the time of the Maccabees. And, of course, they ultimately reconsecrated. That's even described in Daniel in chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, which phases into end time. But at the beginning, it's about Antiochus' time, who was a forerunner or type of the Antichrist. And then, uh, but here... When we see this, he says to us, let the reader understand. He then gives a response that, and he begins to describe the great tribulation period. So Daniel tells us that this abomination takes place in the middle of that last seven years of the age, that last seven. Well, that's 42 months in. We're told all through the New Testament that, there, he's, that this Antichrist is given power for 42 months. 
So he's given absolute power, sets himself up as God in the temple, according to Paul in Second Corinthians chapter, our Second Thessalonians, sorry, chapter two. He he is revealed and sets himself up as God, and uh, at that point, uh, it tells us that this abomination, when it takes place, Jesus says, "You better run. If you live in Jerusalem, in particular, you better run." And that's the response we'll talk about. And it's interesting that Jesus is talking about end time here, and it probably would be good for us to read this passage and then discuss it, but I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> no, that'd be great. Uh, so before you do that, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples at the seat of the church, but obviously uh, much of what he has to say about the end time is not something they would personally see, but he's giving it to them as a teaching for them to write down for his church. Uh, so Christians. Yeah, for Christians, because obviously he's going to discuss his his second coming. And uh, they're not going to see that because they're all going to die as martyrs, except for John. Uh, and so, but they are the ones through which though he would teach this in the New Testament, of course, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So what does he tell his Christian followers? Well, here he says to those, when you see this abomination, which is the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, uh, which is the last seven years of this age, not the end of the world, the end of this age. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the rooftop go down to take anything out of their house. Let no one in the field go back to get uh, their cloak. And then he says, how dreadful it would be, the, will be in those days for uh, you know pregnant women and nursing mothers. Uh, then he says, pray that your flight will not take place on the Sabbath. Uh, for then there will be great distress. And then, then here's this important statement. He says, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So we know that's talking about the Great Tribulation. That's the worst time on the planet up to that point in all of history, and it's never to be equaled again. In fact, he's going to say further down here, well, the very next verse actually says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive but for the sake of the elect. Those days will be shortened. So he's talking about people, you need to drop what you're doing and just run. Yes, especially I mean, if you're in Judea. It's bad. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is that there's something here, and he goes immediately into the tribulation period, talking about false Christ and false teachers. And if somebody tells you, you know, the Messiah is out here in the desert, don't go. If he's in and in a room, don't go. Because when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be like lightning flashing from one side of the sky to the other. Everybody's going to see it. It's going to be very visible. And, uh, but interestingly enough, Jesus didn't just address this that happens at the end of the age. In Luke 21, he addresses one, and it sounds so similar that people completely confuse them. Mm -hmm. But, and I think it'd be good at this point, so we can make that point and then move on with this, if we just went to Luke 21 and talked about what Jesus says there. Because Luke 21 is a record of the Olivet Discourse as well. But as Jesus is walking down through it, you'll notice it tracks perfectly with Matthew 24 and Mark 13. But when you get down to verse 12 in Luke, something interesting happens. Luke starts recording something about the times of the apostles that Matthew just skips over and goes straight to the end time stuff. But And then Luke will phase it back in, as we'll see. But at verse 12, he says this. He's been talking about, you know, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence, you know, the nations rising as nations. That's all tracking with Matthew 24. And then we get down to verse 12, and he says, but before all this, 
So now we go back in time. Mm-hmm. Okay, before all these things I've been talking about, we're going to go back in time. And then he starts discussing stuff that has to be there in the times of the apostles, because we'll notice the language. They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues. That's what happened in, in, in you know, in the apostles' day, synagogues and so on, and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and and all on account of my name. So when you, uh, and so he says, so when you bear testimony to me, uh, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words, you know, that none of your adversaries will be able to stand against. Then he says, you will be betrayed uh, by, you know, your parents and your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your friends, and they will put some of you to death. Now, that's interesting. That happened a lot in the area, in the times of the apostles, as people who would come to Christ, as especially as Jews, would be declared anathema and disowned by their family, and some would be, be betrayed and would be put to death. Uh, and then it says, everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you'll, you'll save your life. And then he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Now, this is going to sound so similar, but it's very different. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. And then he goes on, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women, nursing mothers. Sounds so similar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And then he says, there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, that is history. Right. And we have some evidence that there were people that were reading this information ahead of time and saw Mm -hmm. these things coming uh, at AD 70 when when Jerusalem was destroyed. And and they actually did exactly what it says here, that they left, Mm -hmm. they fled. Yeah, it's actually Josephus who records the fact, J.D., you're correct on that. He records the fact that the Christians reading uh, Luke, and you need to understand the synoptic gospels, most people don't realize this because there's been all this false liberal teaching about the fact that gospels weren't written until much later. No, uh, the, the Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Matthew's gospel were circulating even in the days of... Peter and Paul, uh, and John's gospel would be written later, of course, because it was the last book of the Bible to be written. Not Revelation, but the gospel. Mm-hmm. He wrote Revelation before he wrote the gospel. Most people don't know that. Uh, he wrote the gospel after he came back from the Isle of Patmos back to Ephesus, but uh, and that was the final addition to the New Testament. But the, uh, the interesting thing here is that... Uh, Oh, I lost my train of thought there for a moment. Yeah, Josephus talks about the fact that uh, they read Luke's prophecy, Christ's prophecy that Luke had recorded, and it says the Christians in mass began leaving Jerusalem from about sixty-eight up through about sixty-nine or so. And as a result, and and, and uh, Josephus tells us they went to the mountains of Pella, the region of Pella, and. Uh, and Josephus also said that according to what he could determine, not a single Christian died in the siege of AD 70 because they responded to the prophecy of Jesus and left in mass. And isn't that interesting? Because that tells us that if a prophecy is for our day, God intends for us to be able to understand it if we're paying attention. Yeah, that's pretty powerful information then. So God has obviously given us information for times come, to come. 
Mm-hmm. And so that would say, if you look at historical evidence, if we pay attention to this information about times to come and we adhere to it, then we would have a similar result as what they experienced in AD 70 is that we too would be protected by God because of what he has given us a roadmap on how to be protected. Yes. And and this is so important because if a prophecy couldn't be understood when it was needed, obviously it'd be futile. It'd be ridiculous. It'd mm-hmm. be, what would be the point of giving it? You know, but the point is, is that often people are just not paying attention. You know, the Magi stand out as the great rebuke because they understood Daniel's calendar. Most people don't. We talked about that already, but mm-hmm. most people don't realize the reason the star was so important to them is because they understood the calendar of Daniel and they knew that there was only 30 some years left. So the Messiah had to be born soon uh, because he had to come to manhood and then he was ultimately going to die. And they're. And the gifts they brought says they understood prophetically because you always brought to a king, which they believed him to be. You know, they're looking for the king, the one born, the king of the Jews. Uh, you always brought to a king uh, gifts that talked about your understanding of his greatness. And they brought, you know, gold, which you gave to a royal person. Uh, frankincense, which was used for a god, for worshiping a god. And myrrh, which, of course, was the great um, uh, herb of burial. And, uh, and, and referred to death because he understood the Messiah was going to die. It was also very precious. And so these, all of these gifts were very expensive. And probably the, the Holy Family lived on them while they were in Egypt. They used that gold, that frankincense, and that myrrh as a way to support themselves during the years they had to flee to Egypt uh, to protect the Christ. Well, so this brings us to kind of a, an interesting point. So you've described two different timelines. Yeah, you you described events that sound very very similar in the apostles' time mm-hmm. and times that are yet to come. Yeah. So how can we unpack and understand the differences between these? Because I know there's a lot of confusion that surrounds the events because they do sound very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, we have abominations in both the timelines. We have destruction of the temple. We have all these things that are very. Very, Mm -hmm. very similar or identical in effort, but there are some things that we can look at that show us exactly what the differences are as well. Yes. AD 70, the temple was destroyed, completely destroyed. Uh, However, it does not talk about the temple being destroyed in our future. There will be another temple, uh, but it doesn't talk about being destroyed. It talks about, about it being desecrated and an abomination being put on it. And that's one of the distinctions, uh, we know that Luke's is history because all of it was fulfilled exactly as he said. And the people were dispersed as slaves all over the Roman Empire. They were taken into captivity. And then it says, and Jerusalem will be trampled on. And it talks about not Israel, but Jerusalem, the city itself, will be trampled on until by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles come to a close. That didn't happen until 1967 in the Six-Day War. When the Jews were attacked by the nations around them, they quickly uh, defeated those who had attacked them and gained the city of Jerusalem for the first time. And ever since then, Jerusalem has belonged to the Israelis. And they declared it their capital, but no one would recognize it until our last president did recognize it, as had been promised by each previous president for many years. Term, different terms, and he finally did recognize it as the capital of Jeru- of Israel. And so, the times of the Gentiles in regard to Jerusalem has certainly come to an end. So, we have lived through fulfilled prophecy. 
So that tells us we are now in the times that are working up toward this final kingdom that will be a global kingdom and that globalism will be big on the agenda and that it will ultimately result in a in 10 kings or provinces that will create a global system and that will be ultimately turned over to a dictator at some point who will succeed in basically uh, masterminding this whole global system and turning it into something where the Antichrist himself is actually the, the key ruler and forces everyone to worship him. So when you look at that, when Luke says, until the times of the Gentiles come to a close, that brings you right back to end time because mm-hmm. that's our time. And immediately it goes right back into the same things that Matthew talks about, about end time, the great tribulation period and, you know, and how people are, you know, going to be saying, oh, here's the, here's the Christ. And he says, don't, Christ says, don't go out there. You know, don't even look for those things. And when we get to, and it's going to immediately dovetail into the actual coming of Christ in Matthew 24. And this is where we will have probably a lot of discussion because there's been a lot of false teaching about how this dovetails in from the Great Tribulation into the actual rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. I do find it interesting the point of the time of the Gentiles ending in the 60s rather than at the end of World War II when Israel got their land back. Right. Because I've heard a lot of people argue both directions. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that it makes a whole lot more sense for them to have gotten it when they were able to stand on their own two feet and gain their own autonomy because between the end of World War II and that time, they were under protection of the United States. They were under protection right. of Great Britain. They really weren't autonomous yet. They they weren't able to, to defend themselves and stand up for themselves as a nation. Yeah. And they were sort of treated like a child of another nation. And your discussion on this point sort of emphasizes the fact that the Gentiles no longer controlled their destiny, that they now had the ability to control their own destiny. Yeah, and it's very specific. It's very interesting because Jesus is very specific about the fact that it will be Jerusalem is the key, not Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have their nation back, but they, but they didn't have Israel as their capital right. for a long time. They didn't possess the whole of Israel at all. And uh, Israel was a divided city, and the Arabs controlled most of Israel. And, Jerusalem. And, and, I mean, excuse me, and Jerusalem. They controlled most of Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm misspeaking here. But the point is, is that Israel didn't control Jerusalem. But Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles come to an end. So he's talking specifically about the city. So to say that the times of the Gentiles came to close in 1917, when, you know, you have the Balfour Declaration, or in the 1940s, when finally, you know, 1948, May, Israel becomes a nation, none of those have to do with the Israeli nation controlling Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. The Gentiles still control it. But now Israel controls it. So how important was the declaration by the United States that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel? I think it's significant because it brought a lot of recognition from other nations that indeed this should follow. Uh, of course, there was a lot of condemnation as well by others. Uh, the point is, is that the Jews control it and they've declared it as their capital. I think it was important for the United States, who's supposed to be their ally, <laughs> we mm-hmm. are, uh, to to recognize that and to confirm that. And certainly we are, at least at this point, a world leader. And what we say does impact a lot of other people. So I think it was very important. I do too. I, I think that it signified that all these things that we've been talking about, they are true. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it laid out the fact that it would give more evidence that what we are reading now 
is really part of that long-term plan. Mm -hmm. And for our nation, a nation that I believe that was born and and based upon Christian nation ideals, that for Mm -hmm. us to look back on our heritage, the, the Israeli nation in Jerusalem, and say this is now their capital, I think that's a really big deal yeah. because we're embracing God's plan. It's a recognition, and I, I I applaud President Trump for what he did because I think it, and if you've, uh, of course, there's a lot of prophecy being fulfilled around that, which we don't have time to unpack, but it is important. Um, now, going back to your, uh, you know, what you, what you were leading us into, J.D., uh, Jesus ends his period of talking about, you know, don't go out to all these false messiahs. Mm-hmm. And then he sa- and then he says, uh, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Talking about his coming is going to be a very public event. Very public. And then he says, Where, wherever there is a... Uh, uh, and then uh, he had been asked, uh, you know, by the disciples, you know, well, when, you know, where is this going to happen or how is this all going to happen? And he says, but... Uh, he says, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And some people go, what does all this mean? You know, what is that? It's a, it's a proverb. And basically it means this, that there's going to be a gathering of people around this, this system of death. Uh, they're going to be feeding on that which can only bring death because it is a dead thing. It's severed from God. And uh, there's going to be a gathering, so to speak, of the vultures, the nations, to this uh, whole system that's so deadly. And uh, and then he gives this amazing set of signs. And remember, his coming is a signs preceding coming, not an imminent coming that could happen at any moment because he can't break his word. There are signs that have to be fulfilled. And he says immediately after the distress of those days, referring to the Great Tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, we are going to see it. And, um, but the point is, is he then says, that's when he says, then, and there again is that Greek word, tata, then. So while this is happening, when you see these things, then will appear the sign of the son of man in the heavens and all the people of the earth, uh, will mourn and they will see, talking about the whole earth, will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered right here. So my first one's going to be exactly right. Yeah, my first one's going to be, so what I heard you just say, I believe, is that the seven-year tribulation period has ended now. Not ended. Uh, we're told, if you if you put Revelation together, and along with what Jesus is saying here, he talks about, unless those days are shortened, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Uh, the tribulation period isn't over. In fact, uh, Boy, this is another long discussion, <laughs> J.D. You're, you're raising good questions here, um, but it's probably not part of where we need to okay. go today because it's another whole session. Okay. But, uh, the part, uh, but the point is, is that most people see the coming of Christ as a single day. What we must understand, yes, it's going to happen instantaneously. The rapture is going to happen very quick, but it covers a period of time. Christ is going to be in the sky. It says all the nations of the earth will see him. So the earth's going around at least once, <laughs> you know. But but if you look at all of Bible prophecy, you discover there's a period of time here. And it's very likely during this period of time that God begins pouring out his wrath. And uh, and it's the bowls of judgment and all of those things. And then and some of those will happen maybe a little bit before this. But 
the and began earlier than this, but it's going to culminate in a period of time, even after. And it says the nations are mourning. Uh, they're they're struggling with this. They they're and the Antichrist is going to be selling it somehow that Christ is some kind of invader that we need to defeat. He's going to be gathering the nations of the earth and the armies to fight. With Christ, not with Israel, but they're going to try to destroy Israel to make God's word untrue because they think that's Satan thinks if I can make his word untrue, then I can say, hey, you didn't do what you said, you know, and he got an accusation against God. But the point is, is that they're going to try to fight Christ. And so he's got to have some, I don't know if this is, you know, Christ is an alien trying to invade the world. Well, I see that talk <laughs> a lot right now, to be honest with you. Yeah. There, there's a big push to acknowledge, I suppose, uh, an alien presence out there. And to me, it's a big setup for exactly what you're talking about. If they can use this as an event to say, we're being invaded by Mars or, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, then they will, they'll be able to rally as many people as you could possibly think of yeah. to fight against this invasion. Well, I, I think there could be some validity to that, J.D., because I, while I, I, of course, we, we look at it and think it's preposterous, we need to understand that there are aliens among us in the sense that there are spirit beings among us that are fallen spirit beings. There are also righteous spirit beings, the holy angels that serve us. And uh, there is every reason to believe that the fallen spirit beings often create these delusions and also manifestations. I have, in, the, in some of the ministries I've been involved with in helping people come out of the occult, I can tell you that people who have occult backgrounds often have alien abduction stories often have all kinds of alien experiences. They see things, they see, uh, you know, creatures materialize and all kinds of things. And uh, they they consider often those people to do that they're uh, aliens. Sometimes others are more informed and know that they're spirit beings. But the point is, is that you can see how those two things can get mished together, especially if somebody's promoting it that way. And we see a lot of promotion today. We're trying to get people to believe in this uh, alien idea, and uh, Christians should say, well, yeah, we know there's aliens among us, but the Bible tells us exactly who they are, and uh, they are going to create, it says, doctrines of demons and delusions in the last day, and maybe one of the great delusions, it says God sends a powerful delusion to those who won't love the truth, and they believe the lie and are doomed, uh, Could this could be part of that delusion. I don't know. Yeah, I, I've often suspected that they will try to have a couple different alien races, one that is here to be a benevolent saviors to us and <laughs> one that come to attack us. Yeah. And and quite honestly, it's it's the demons that are or the fallen angels that are all doing all this acting yeah. for this purpose. And, you know, we see in my lifetime I've seen dozens, if not more, people claim to be Jesus Christ himself. I mean, we have the Jesus in Mexico right now. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Through time, we've had a lot of people that have claimed to be the return of the king. But these guys can barely fill an amphitheater to have people see them. And I read exactly what you read is there will be no doubt on any human's mind right. that Christ is here yeah. when he arrived. Yeah. The big problem and the big deception going on in the Church of Jesus Christ in most evangelical churches today, and in many, many, much of it's well-intended, J.C., J.D., is that they don't, there's a lot of, uh, this pre-tribulation theory, they got started in 1832, a little gal who had a vision, Margaret McDonald, who suddenly, and her vision said that people who lived especially holy lives would be able to be raptured before the tribulation, but as the church had taught for 1800 years, because they had never taught anything else, but 
that the church would go through the tribulation. In fact, what gives the tribulation a bad name is the wrath of Satan, not the wrath of God. It's the wrath of Satan against God's people, which is described in Revelation 13, chapter 13 and 14. And the point is, is that the church had always taught that they, in fact, you read the early fathers, they say that he's going to persecute the church. They just come right out and say it. The, and they're talking about the Antichrist. And that many Christians will have to flee to the mountains or flee from city to city. And, they, and some will be alive and remain when Christ returns. But many will have to give their life as Christ warned. But the point of it is that the early church fathers taught that. Well, she taught, well, she had a vision. And though it's not really in the Bible, per se, uh, at least from her perspective, uh, but her vision said that those who live really holy lives would get to be raptured ahead of time. Everybody else had to go through it. And and then, uh, of course, she had all kinds of ideas of what a holy life was. Uh, Jay and Darby, uh, the Plymouth Brethren theologian from America, uh, heard about her vision, went to visit her, was involved in uh, the, her and her sister and brother's little Bible study, liked her idea, and then went back to America and started proof texting it and turned it into a whole theology that everybody gets raptured before the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, and that's what created all the big prophetic conferences in the late 1800s and early 1900s where people were going hysterical and selling their farms and getting on top of mountains with bed sheets waiting for Christ. Because somebody was predicting today, but that comes to our point. You'll hear people predict that Jesus is coming back, you know, 1988, 188, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. I remember that one. And it's been several of them, of course, since then. And why do they do that? Because people only say, well, Jesus said you can't know the day or the hour. And they'll say, well, that's the second coming proper. But the rapture is something altogether different. Well, the problem is there isn't two more comings. Uh, there isn't a secret kidnapping and then the second coming. There's only the second coming. And there is a rapture. It will happen. But the rapture is part of this second coming of Christ. And that's not the only thing that happens in the second coming of Christ. And it's a it's a period of time that covers maybe we don't know how long could cover several weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel talks about a forty five day period, which we don't even know what it means. But it talks about those who reach the twelve hundred ninetieth day. But blessed are those who reach all the way to the thirteen hundred and thirty fifth day. Well, what are those forty five days? We don't know. But there's blessing if you get there. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously uh, a very important time. And Jesus here, we must understand. We're going to see this as we go a couple more verses in. It's talking about the rapture happening at this point. Yeah, I think people overlook the fact that when he comes on a cloud, he's going to call his bride to him. Mm -hmm. That's the rapture. That's not him coming and, and then leaving and coming back. Yeah. And from what I read, we're going to go and we're going to be there with him in the clouds while the rest of all this is getting ready to happen. Well, in fact, Jesus emphasized that several times in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, right here he'll say, and he will send his angels. Mm -hmm. Verse 31, with a loud trumpet call. Notice there's a trumpet call. Christ is here. The angels are here. And they're in the clouds of the sky. The same as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. I mean, there's no difference. Five key things here. They're all present. And he will you know, send them with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect. That's the church. And again, elect doesn't mean Israel per se. It means all believers in Christ. In fact, if you do a study of how many times the word elect is used in the Bible, it's used about 85% of the time of the church. Uh, and in fact, there's only a couple times it actually specifically mentions only Israel. Sometimes the elect are Jews, but some, but they're always believers in Christ. But the point is, is that, uh, and it says they gather his elect from one end of the heavens to the other. That means from all over the earth. So it's not just Israel. 
And then, and so this is clearly the rapture of the church, mm-hmm. but it's also a, a very visible thing. It's not a secret kidnapping and there, it isn't divided in time. There is no second and third coming or phased coming. Uh, it's one great event. It's the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. Some people try to make a distinction and say, well, the day of Christ, the rapture, the day of the Lord, that's the real proper second coming. No, you'll find that both terms are often used in the same passage talking about the same event. So it it simply is a false dichotomy. There, I, This split coming theory has no has no ground in Scripture. Jesus, in the 25th chapter of Matthew, which continues the Olivet Discourse, will, remember, give the parable of the ten virgins. And he uses, he says, at that time, again, the word tada, he's a sequence word, talking about end time. At this end time I've been talking about, he says, it's going to be like ten virgins who trimmed their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom, and they're waiting for him. This is a symbol of the church. And then he talks about five who are wise, five who are foolish. But then he talks about, and he uses this Hebrew wedding to describe this coming of Christ. He says, this is how it's going to be. And it's interesting how Hebrews weddings happen, happen then. Yeah, they weren't a short event. They weren't a one-day deal. No, 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 no. The, no, they sure were not. <laughs> the uh, bridegroom, uh, you know, it's interesting. They, the, uh, the, uh, the bride and the groom would be, actually be married in the sense of what we would call it, in the sense that they were engaged, but betrothal, mm-hmm. but it could not, it was the same as marriage. It had, the only way it could be broken was by divorce. But the young groom did not get his bride mm-hmm. <laughs> because he had to go home or to wherever he was planning on building, but usually it was at his father's place. He would have to build a place suitable for his bride before he could come and get her. Now, this is interesting because Jesus Sounds used... Sounds like what Jesus was Yeah, doing. Jesus used his imagery several times in talking about this. Because remember, he said, I'm going away to build a, a t- and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Mm-hmm. And when I've prepared it, I'm coming back to get you. That's his bride he's coming back for. Right. See, that's John 14. But he talks about it here as well. And he's saying it's like this because the, when the young man began building, he could not just throw up any old lean to and then go say, I'm going to get my girl because that's what he do. He's hormone driven. He wants the girl, you know, and no, 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 no. He has to wait until the father says you've done a good job and this will stand up to the family name. Mm -hmm. So when the father said, good job, son, now you can go get your bride. He would send word ahead and say, not the exact hour he's arriving, not even sometimes the the exact day. Say within this period right here, I'm coming. So they had to be ready. They would get everything ready. And yes, he would come within one or two days of what he said. But when he came, he would not come to the house to get her. He would find some place to make a lot of noise. He'd have a wedding party with him. They'd blow their trumpets. They would do all this stuff. And they would shout, the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is here. And Jesus says it happened at midnight. And they all woke up. And there were five who were wise and had the oils representing the Holy Spirit. And they were ready. They trimmed their lamps. and, And it says... The cry was, the bridegroom is here, come you out to meet him. Right. Important word, apantasis in the Greek. And it's the same word that Paul uses in the first Thessalonian passage. When he talks about, we shall rise to meet him in the air, talking about the rapture. It, we will apantasis him. What does that word mean? It's a word used all in ancient literature. We know exactly what it means. It's in every place it's used in the New Testament. It means the same thing. It means to go out to meet, celebrate, and escort back to where you came from. 
Paul is going to Rome, and the Christians here, he's almost there. And it says they went out as far as the three taverns to apantasis him, to meet him and to escort him back into Rome. And so that's it's what the word always means. And it's used at the coming of Christ several times. And he says, we will meet him in the air. What are we going to do? We're going to celebrate. Maybe set up the government. I don't know. And then we're going to come back with him as he crushes the armies of Antichrist, destroys the uh, the evil on the planet, and sets up his earthly king by putting his feet on the Mount of Olives. And that may be several weeks in the air with Christ. We don't know. Well, I know that the Jewish weddings of that day were, were quite lengthy. And they were quite lengthy. Days of partying and dancing. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, it sounded like a good time. And what we see here is a direct image mirrored of the Jewish wedding ceremony and Paul's arrival. And I mean, we see it all throughout the Bible. We've repeated this. Mm-hmm. over and over. And one thing I've, I've learned about God over the years is when God wants you to know something, he repeats it many times. Yes. And if he's repeating something this many times, it's important for you to understand it. Yeah. And the fact that Jesus would, would go back to this imagery over and over, like on the night before he's leaving them, before he goes, he says, look, I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'll come back to get you. He's using wedding terminology. The disciples would mm-hmm. recognize this. And he said, I'm taking you to be with me. That's what the bridegroom does. He takes the bride to become, be with him. And, uh, and so Jesus says, in that day, Tata, it's going to be at that time like a Hebrew wedding. And I'm going to show up and you're going to come out to meet me and you're going to escort me back and I'm going to set up my kingdom. And, and that's a powerful imagery. So this is clearly in Matthew 24, the rapture. So people say, where does the rapture happen? Well, we don't know the day or the hour. Jesus clearly taught us that. But we do know the sequence because he's given us the sequence. And so uh, it's a signs preceding coming. So we have to pay attention to the signs. That's why in Luke's version, he records also that Jesus added. So when you see these things taking place, look up for your redemption is drawing near. In other words, and he's talking about those final signs at the end when they all begin to crescendo together. And he says, now look up. So what is he saying? The signs will tell you when to look up if you're paying attention to them. Just like the Christians in A.D. 68, 69, you can say, oops, it's time. Let's go, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you will be, you know, we should be looking up for our redemption. So in verse 34, he's talking about, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Mm-hmm. He's specifically talking about the generation that sees the abomination Mm-hmm. that sees this world power come into place and to divide these kingdoms up. Yes. Right? Yes. So all the people, I, I take it the people that are living during that time, they're going to be here until Christ comes. Right. All of it's going to happen within a generation. Now, what stock starts that generational clock ticking? Boy, there's been speculation after speculation <laughs> after sure speculation. You know, people have come up with, you know, 1917, the Balfour Declaration, 1948, Jew- the Israels became a nation, uh, on and on it goes, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. But the point is, and of course, you know, they'll also dig into, you know, what he says about the fig tree and so on right. and the symbolism there. And uh, we don't have time to go into that. But but the point is, is that there's lots of speculation. But what Jesus is saying It's the generation that sees all these signs crescendo together will not and start to take place, will not pass away until everything has happened. It's all going to come until my coming actually takes place. How long is the generation? Well, there's a big discussion about that. You know, how, you know, it could be 
Some people say, oh, it's the shortest 40 years. Well, it could be 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be 70 years. It could be 120 years. You know, uh, Noah taught for 120 years and preached for 120 years while he prepared the ark. Yeah, we we take it that we're still only going to be living 60, 70, 80 years, and we could be back to the 120. We, We don't know. Yeah. And so, but a generation may be tied probably to the basic lifespan of people at that period of time. Mm-hmm. He's saying this generation of people will not have been, you know, the last one will not have died before everything's happened. Right. So I think that would be the practical way to look at it, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't have another definition of a generation. So that answers that, you know, that question about, uh, you know, where does the rapture happen in the sequence? And that prepares us to discuss a lot of other things. You know, for example, if you go to the First Thessalonians passage, Jesus has given us a skeleton, and you're not allowed to scramble his skeleton, his calendar. You're not allowed to rearrange it. People want to do that all the time. Well, you know, verse 30 actually happens before verse 15. That's what you'd have to do. You'd have to make 30 happen before 15 if you had a split theory of the coming of Christ as being a rapture, and then years later having some kind of second coming. Um, but you can't do that to Jesus. But what you can do is you can go to other places in Scripture and you will get a lot of meat added to this structure, to this skeleton, so to speak, that fills out. Jesus didn't miss anything. The idea that he didn't mention the rapture would be silly. I mean, that's that's the key thing about his coming mm-hmm. to get his bride, to get his church. Oh, yeah. So obviously it's here. Jesus didn't skip it. Right. And some say, well, he didn't skip that. He just talks about the second coming proper. No, it's all there. But uh, he is basically telling us that, uh, you know, there are, you know, Jesus giving us the structure, but you can go to other places and add a lot of meat to it. Paul, for example, is going to give you a lot of information about the actual rapture. And, uh, and second Thessalonians gives a lot of information about the tribulation period, how the antichrist will be apocalypto, uh, be unmasked. And then he said, and then you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he is revealed so that we know what he is. And then he immediately says in the very next statement that he will set himself in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the unmasking. Maybe for the first 42 months of the 70th week of Daniel, everybody thinks he's the greatest guy on planet Earth. And he's the best thing since sliced bread. But he's eventually going to show his real colors and demand worship. And he's going to be Satan incarnate in almost in every way imaginable. And he's going to create bloodshed like the world's never seen. The Christian Holocaust will make the Jewish Holocaust look like a dress rehearsal. And I know that's not good news for a lot of people, but it's, it's a truth that the Bible teaches. And if, and if we go to revelation 13 and 14, we'll be able to see that clearly. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the Christians of today don't have the same understanding and background that first century Christians did because for them to be willing to risk everything mm-hmm. for their faith was really not a big deal to them. They, they knew that going into it. Most of these Christians in the beginning were so persecuted for what they were doing that they knew that they were risking their lives immediately. And and, and there's a lot of people around the world today that are doing that already. Yeah, I mean, we have... Uh, Myanmar Christians that are being persecuted incredibly exactly. and in China and in Iraq, Iran, and all over the world, uh, Pakistan. I mean, they're just being persecuted to death. Yeah. But in, in our country, we haven't seen that. And so I kind of liken it to we're a little bit soft in this area mm-hmm. because we don't understand true sacrifice yeah. for our faith. But I believe that we're going to. 
Well, it's ramping up, as you can see, J.D. We've got, uh, you know, the hatred of true Christians. You know, I think I mentioned this last Sunday to our own congregation in, in all the services. I mentioned the fact that, you know, if you are a believer who says there's only one way to Christ, to God, and that's Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And there's a lot of ways we need to understand the application of that. But the point is, is that's a truth which we cannot negotiate. Christ is the only way. Now, uh, if you are a believer who says that, you'll be called every <laughs> vitriolic thing that can be said about you. They will scream at you. They will call you a, a bigot. And they will call you all kinds of things. But the point is, is that anyone who stands for the truth today in that sense is hated and vilified, mm -hmm. and uh, that and that's going to lead to we're seeing persecution begin in the sense of all kinds of censorship uh, of Christians. Uh, conservatives are getting it as well, who may not even be Christians in some cases. Many of them are guilty the point, by association. Yeah, but but they're guilty by association because they believe many things that are founded in the Christian Judeo-Christian uh, worldview, and as a result, they they're hated because of it. And uh, so we're seeing that ramp up in America right now and in Europe. It's, it's really bad. And anti-Semitism right now is worse in Europe today than it was before Nazism took over in Germany in the 30s. And most people don't realize that, that anti-Semitism is absolutely rampant around the world. And oh, so yeah. we're going to see not and but there's also another sentiment, and that's anti-Christian sentiment. And uh, Christians are becoming the great enemy. We're becoming the people who have messed up everything. Well, I see that right now in our in our news media. I see it within our Congress. Uh, we have members of Congress that are, are blaming Christians for the violence and hatred that's going on in our nation. Mm -hmm. um, we're being blamed for every ill that's mm -hmm. striking our nation right now when in really the Christians have been very quiet. Yeah. Well, most, really Christians, most Christians, I don't think there's very many people claiming to be Christians who are out in the streets throwing rocks through windows and burning down, you know, businesses. And, and uh, you know, they're not doing that. But the point is, is that we get blamed for it because the people who are doing it say, well, I'm doing it because of them, you know, <laughs> and, and it's the old blame shift game, you know. But uh, so, you know, and then so it becomes our fault right. because they're out there doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's that's Satan's an accuser. That's what he does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and you know it fits right into his motivations of the absolutely lying continuously. Yes, all the lies. I think that uh, we'll see an increase in this stress in our nation, and we'll begin to see things that other nations are seeing, where you'll have real persecution here mm -hmm. at some point. I, I don't think we'll be immune to it forever, for no. sure. In this context, it might be important to point out, though, JD, that. You know, people need to not throw their hands up and feel like, you know, we're we're, we're um, promoting some kind of Friday the 13th terror movie here. Uh, the point is, is that God's people have victory during these times. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember a friend of mine years ago who had been on my staff years earlier, who, who made a trip to China right after it opened up. And the people there had been severely persecuted. And when he got especially out of the cities... He discovered that, and he, he was, uh, you know, kind of uh, sympathizing with someone going, oh, we're so sorry for the things you suffered. And they rebuked him. They said, no, 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 don't feel sorry for us. 
We have been through terrible things, but God's grace has been with us. It has deepened our faith. We would not take anything for what we've been through because our faith has become real to us and we have seen God do miraculous things for us and we know he's real. We know he's true and we know he's with us. And so they were rebuking him for all of his trying to have pity on them. They said, don't have pity on us. Said, we're blessed because God is with us in the midst of all we're suffering. It's an amazing, uh, amazing attitude that a would help a lot of uh, Western Christians. <laughs> Absolutely agree. No, I, I think we're seeing some victories now. We've seen court cases where the courts are are siding with Christians on the limitations of being put on church services, and they're mm-hmm. saying that they're illegal, that they can't enforce that law anymore. So we are seeing some victories. We are seeing some places where people are standing up for what is right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're right. We will see a lot of that over time, even as people try to persecute Christians more, God will be there every yeah. step of the way, and he will deliver those people that are truly following his word. And one of the things we have to, if we're going to be honest here, uh, and I, I assume we are, <laughs> of course, but, but we, have to be, we have to have the humility to say, as much as it looks like this is ramping up, and if it continues to ramp up, there's not much chance of us not being in the last generation. Uh, or at least our children right. being in the last generation. But the point is, is that we can't be sure of that because there have been times when really bad things have happened. The world has been teetering on the edge. Hitler wanted, was trying to be an Antichrist. Satan was working through Hitler. Don't think he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte wanted to conquer all of Europe, too, and he mm-hmm. wanted to be an Antichrist. He, and, uh, you know, he, was, he even had himself crowned the, the Holy Roman Emperor. And when the Pope went to put the crown on his head, he snatched it away from him and put it on his own head. You know, arrogant and beyond uh, comprehension. But the point is, is that uh, there have been many times Satan has tried. But remember what Paul said. He said, but the one who hinders will continue to hinder if you're reading from the King James, it sounds confusing. The one who lets will continue to let. He who now letteth will continue to let. The word let back in those days in King in 1611 meant to hinder. And so the word did a 180. Uh, but uh, anyway, we can't go through the <laughs> all the epistemology of that. But but the point is, is that that word now mean it meant to hinder. But the one who hinders will continue to hinder. And then the Greek, actually, it's hard to determine whether the action of the verb goes one direction or the other, but the probably the most likely best translation that comes following this is that until it is time for him to rise out of the midst. Now, we usually translate that until he is taken out of the way or he, you know, and then that wicked one will be revealed. But probably it says he will continue to hinder until it's time for him to rise out of the midst, the Antichrist, and then that wicked one will be revealed. And uh, either way, it's, it still says the same thing. But the point is, is that God is the one hindering. Now, there are people who have said, oh, well, it's the rapture that, you know, the church is taken out of the way. No, it's not the church that is hindering. Uh, and it, and to say that the church being raptured and they say, well, the Holy Spirit's going to be withdrawn. Well, that's really an unbiblical. Uh, the idea that the, ra- the withdrawing of the Holy Spirit would take place before the end of the age would be contrary to everything the Bible says. Plus, these people even teach that during the tribulation, people are going to get saved by recognizing they missed the rapture and they're going to have to give their lives. Well, are they going to get saved by the weakened beggarly elements of the law or something? Because there's not any Holy Spirit. You can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. So that's a ridiculous idea. You know, it just makes no sense. But the point is, is that people say those things and don't really think them through, you know, theologically and biblically. 
So if we had to, as we come to a close here, as, as we had to say, what is one of the things that we would look to as maybe one of the next signs that is on our horizon to know that we're still marching down this path? Mm-hmm. What would one of those things be, in your opinion? Uh, it's very clearly globalism. Okay. Uh, the Bible makes it clear if we were to go to Daniel 7, we don't have time to do that. But if we were to go to Daniel 7 and understand that Daniel 7, most people, for years, the commentaries, if you look at any commentary, they're going to tell you that Daniel 7 is a reiteration and an expansion of Daniel 2. Uh, and yes, there is a kind of overlay, but this is a double prophetic overlay. But the primary meaning of Daniel 7 is not re- referring to the Babylonian Empire, the Media Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, and then the fragmented, uh, divided, or the divided Roman Empire, East and West, and then ultimately the fragmented European, which we see, which that does all, Daniel 7 goes all the way to the end of time. Because it tells us that it, it, it's a statue is going to be destroyed by this rock that is cut out without human hands, which means God does it. And it's going to strike the statue in its feet at the tolls. Right. And the tolls represent the ten kings, we're told later in Revelation. There are ten kings who receive power at the very end. And they have one purpose, and that's to give their authority unto the beast. And so they're the ones who make the Antichrist the dictator of the world, but these 10 providences, which have already been uh, suggested that we create 10 economic zones, 10 mm-hmm. provinces and put, uh, you know, governments over them and create a global system and whether that actually happened immediately or not. But the point is there's a huge drive right now with this Dalfour, uh, Dalfour uh, conference, you know, that happened in, in Switzerland and uh, and they just had it this January, just a few weeks ago, and they were so excited they scheduled another one for this year in May, right, right. and it's going to be in Singapore, and they're trying to push this agenda because they feel like it's been delayed, and and basically Trump did delay it. President <laughs> Trump got there was a four year delay in their oh, plan. They hated him so much because regardless of what you think of him, the point is, is that the, some of the things he did messed up their agenda because right. they thought they had America where they wanted them and that we would be, you know, willing to slide right into this global system. Well, not just America. What I saw over his four years is an awakening across Europe. I saw an awakening across Australia, all over the world, mm-hmm. where the people started to stand up against their government. Yeah. And they hadn't been doing that. Right. Well, he gave a lot of people courage. Yeah, and, uh, and so that's one of the things that I think they're they're quite yeah. unhappy about because they had quelled this uprising to their mindset, mm-hmm. and if it wasn't for him, they would have snuffed it completely. Which tells us that even God can even use you know, and, and I know there are some Christians who say, "Well, you know, I just I'm not a Trump fan. Uh, I'm not here to discuss that." I, <laughs> you know, the point is is that I wasn't either. Uh, I voted for him the first time in the first election, simply because I felt like <laughs> you had to take the lesser of two evils, and I felt the other was a, an extremely not a bad choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, the point is, is I, I had never been a Trump fan, but I have to admit that over the four years, he won my respect, because I've never seen anybody go through the vitriol he went through, and they hated him because he was messing up their agenda, and he did things that were very much in line with American exceptionalism and also with the principles of our Constitution, which I hadn't seen for a long, long time. Even Reagan didn't have the courage to do some things that Trump did. Uh, so in that sense, I have to give him his his due. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, 
you know, there's other things I wasn't happy with, and I'm sure others weren't. But the point is, is that God surprised us with him. And uh, and yes, it may be set the clock back a little bit. That's God's mercy. Right. And we should be thankful for that. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there are frameworks set in place already for this globalist government. I think what we're seeing, the authority and power of the CDC and the WHO and, uh-huh. and all these other bureaucratic elements. Right will be able to be pulled together in a form of government at some point. But man, these guys, they say a word and it just snaps the whole world to attention. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's a little bit terrifying that one bureaucratic element can make such an impact on the entire world mm-hmm. from a decision-making standpoint. Well, and, and you're dead on JD because, uh, bureaucracy is going to be the hallmark of this global system. And we know that bureaucracies tend to deteriorate into total uh, ineptness mm-hmm. and then ultimately lead to dictatorial power because nothing functions properly. And so, and, and we can see that because they become bloated, bloated, ineffective systems of, of governance. And, uh, and, and that's where we're headed. And, uh, you know, Daniel 7, again, is, is a, it gives us the beast and they're all end time beast. They, they, they're in our recent history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have time to unpack that right now, but they fit perfectly. Yeah. And, and right now we are ready for the development of the last beast and we're seeing it happen. And it's going to be, it's going, it's the only one that says it tramples the whole world. And so, you know, none of the previous, even Rome did not trample the whole world. It controlled most of the known world of that day, but it didn't even control all the known world of that day. There were provinces they never conquered and couldn't. Uh, but the point is, is that this system is going to trample down the whole world. And that's the system, that's the beast, the iron beast with iron teeth and bronze claws that is now being formulated. Now, it may, how long does it take to form a nation like that? Well, in our day, with media and all that's going on, it can be done very quickly. Very quickly. On the other hand, God may, in His grace, give us you know much more time. Yep. We because nations don't you know, always uh, just appear overnight and disappear overnight. But this one isn't going to last long as far as when it finally comes to its full power. It has forty-two months. Well, as I tell people all the time, one of the things that God continuously tells us, and and it's written even in the Word that if we would humble ourselves mm-hmm. and pray that he can hear us. Yes. And he can stay this. Yes. I mean, we're not at a point in time where things are rolling so fast that it has to finish now. No. I mean, we could get a reprieve for another four, eight, 10, mm-hmm. 50 years, but we have to humble ourselves. Yeah. We have to get out of our selfish nature. Right. And we have to turn to the creator and say, we know that we have been wrong and we really, really need you. So please help us. Yeah, and and this really goes back, what you're talking and referring to goes back to also our proper understanding of God's sovereignty. He is absolutely sovereign. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. He is in charge. He is in control. Nothing is getting out of control and God's wringing his hands in no way, shape, or form. He's sovereign. But we must understand his sovereign is a complex sovereignty. It's not a simplistic sovereignty. And unfortunately, the church is rattled through with simplistic sovereignty where it's determinism. God controls every little minute detail and nobody can do anything unless he has already predetermined it and, you know, predestined it. Well, the point is, is that God's predestined has to do with his will in regard to, you know, if you choose to believe in him, you are predestined to be conformed to Christ, but that he's not predestined you to believe in him, you know, 
And so, but the point is, is that when you come to this for end time, we need to understand that man's will will play a large, large part in this. But God's sovereignty is so complex that he can work with free people with us with limited freedom. We don't have absolute freedom. We have limited freedom, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he can work with that limited freedom. And it's bounded by his sovereignty in the sense that there's things we can't choose and we won't be able to do, but he can work with that and still guide history to where he wants it to be. And he works in that uh, man's responses so that we actually, our lives really have meaning what we do and don't do, whether we pray or don't pray, whether or not we humble ourselves or don't humble ourselves, all has meaning because God is not just up there like a puppeteer pulling strings. Well, I'm sure that gives a lot of people comfort. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's what we have time for today. Again, I greatly appreciate you coming and help us understand this. Um, These are some very confusing and some difficult things for people to understand. And I think it is extremely important for our listeners to to get an understanding of this because so many of our future conversations are going to be based upon what we're learning now. Right. And so it, it would be very important for us to understand this from a biblical perspective of this timeline as we move forward. So there aren't unnecessary fears or confusion. Yeah. And I do appreciate you coming and talking to us. Well, I appreciate you JD because you're, you're actually giving a format for people to start, hearing these things, understanding these things, and then we can discuss these things. Because all we've done is scratch the surface here, and it raises a thousand questions, and they're all legitimate, or at least the most of them are. And uh, if we can answer those in some way, and, and certainly there's some we can answer. We have There's sometimes the only right answer is, I don't know, right. and God hasn't revealed that yet, or if he has, I don't understand it, and I, I'm still searching, and I'm still looking. Uh, there has to be humility in this process. But... Mm-hmm. The other side of it is that there's so much we do know that people don't know because they're not paying attention or they haven't been taught by people who are doing exegesis, but are simply doing eisegesis and laying their interpretations over Scripture rather than letting Scripture teach us. And I'm so grateful you're providing a format for the teaching of Scripture to actually go out and where people can begin to understand the times. And by understanding the times, we become people of wisdom. Absolutely. And so there you go, uh, listeners. This is one of those times where I'm going to tell you that we want this to be a interactive show. So I'd very much like to hear from you. Go to our website, send us some questions. What would you like for Dr. Durham to answer? What, what questions do you have? What misnomers have you been told in your life that don't line up with what we're teaching? And talk to us. Let us know what you need to know, and we will Do our absolute best to answer those questions and get you the information that you need to live your life. Thank you for walking with us through this portion of the Olivet Discourse. Stick with us as we journey through the calendar that Jesus revealed to his disciples about the end of the age and the signs that we should be looking for. Please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also, find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Durham, you can find him at pcnh.church. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day.